Hello, uh, welcome to the last event in the new writing series uh, this quarter. We will have more in the in the future. Uh, let me just remind you to turn your cell phones off uh, or down, um, and let me thank the Dean's Office of Arts and Humanities for their support for our, for our series. Also, I'll remind you that um, that these are available via podcast through the special collections in the library. These these readings, the recordings. And they're recorded in stereo, which is, uh, is you'll probably never actually listen to them in stereo, but it'll probably sound really great uh, if you split the sound. Um, so I need to introduce uh, one of our, uh, the pride of our, of our uh, MFA program, one of the many pr- prides, uh, <laughs> pride producers, uh, Kik Araki Kawagauchi, is that close to your name? Uh, I'm sorry to say that. Um, Keek's going to introduce Joshua Clover, and uh, Keek, come on up. Thanks. Uh, so Joshua Clover is a professor of creative writing at UC Davis. If you find him on the Davis Wiki, which is this amazing wiki about the tiny town of Davis, California, uh, you can find a lot of amazing Joshua Clover quotes. Uh, for example, yeah, well, you smoke pot and listen to heavy metal, so everything's profound to you. <laughs> what if, despite being an economist, you are in fact a human being? God is the ultimate robot. I can dance to movies. I can dance to motherfucking architecture. <laughs> All I know is my love is like, whoa. Those are great, right? Those might not be true. I, I, I got them off a tiny website that's less credible than Wikipedia. Um, so I, I was lucky enough to have Joshua as a professor at Davis, and I think he is probably just the most ingenious reader on the planet. Um, most people here are probably writers, so people know what I'm talking about, but it's a pretty common workshop experience to show up with work that you finished like 15 minutes before. And um, you spend the next week like really nervous and embarrassed and depressed because you gave everyone this thing you hadn't thought about, and you knew you were just going to get like publicly shamed at the next <laughs> workshop meeting. Um, but in Joshua's workshop, always this like little miracle would happen. Joshua would come and sort of rescue that poem and give it this very brilliant, generous reading. Um, and it was this sort of reading that the poem was sort of aspiring to be. Um, and I think. You know, and everyone in the room, still like in the back of their minds, knew that the poem was sort of still in its like shoddy, embryonic stages. But it wasn't about trying to like transform it into a final draft, because that would be like magic and not poetry. But I think the reason he does this is um, not only because he's a very generous reader, um, not only because, of course, he's he's sensitive to how vulnerable amateur writers like me feel in workshops, but I think like even the shakiest, like shittiest poems written by the most inexperienced writers are still seen as these very sacred gestures to Joshua. And uh, he doesn't mind spending the time and energy finding really big ambitions for those pieces, um, which I was blown away by at the time. Um, and when I got to teach my first creative writing workshops as a graduate student, I just felt very lucky um, that I'd seen that level of dedication and generosity modeled for me. Um, Joshua is finishing two books, a collection of poems, a tranche slash syntagma, and another text on poetry and crisis called The Transformation Problem. He's a contributor to The Village Voice and Spin and The Nation, and the author of two books of cultural criticism, Bob Dylan Didn't Have This to Sing About and The Matrix, and two books of poems, 
Madonna on a Domini and the Totality for Kids, um, which has a poem in it with these arresting lines. And we have yet to invent anything so pure as the guillotine, an instrument known also as the little window. But what shall we hope to see there? The marriage of the beautiful and the trivial, that the sky finally emptied of clouds must now say a new thing. Um, so I'm not really the person qualified to speak on Joshua's poetics, but I do want to say very few poets can write a poem like his Metalipsis for Yuen Hua, which is somehow about typology and the flags of convenience, and yet also somehow about Rihanna and Michael Caine and Alfie. Um, and Joshua gets to speak on all sorts of things as film critic and music reviewer and expert on architecture, but we're just really lucky to have him here as a poet today, so please help me in welcoming him to the stage. Hi. It's interesting when people give introductions, they end up talking about themselves. <laughs> that, was, that was actually one of the, the, the kindest and most generous introductions I've ever received, and I'm really grateful for that. Thank you very much. Uh, black box effect. I can't see you. You can see me. I'm really uh, high right now. <laughs> Coffee and sugar combination. Uh, it's it's oh, right now the com it, the mix is pretty good and I'm feeling great, <laughs> but it can change quickly. So I'm going to read for about 25 30 minutes, and if sometime during it my demeanor shifts drastically, don't worry, that's just a readjustment of the actual chemicals. Um, I'm going to read. Seven poems. They make a little shape in my mind, although not in reality. Which is to say there's four long ones and three short ones. So you see how that's going to work? Long, short, long, short. The reason that doesn't really work is because one of the shorter poems is longer than one of the longer poems. <laughs> but in my head, that's how it works. These are all from the, the, the book. I'm, I'm just, I would say finishing, but... That implies some degree of knowledge about it that I'm not sure I have yet. Uh, it's a book I've been working on. I, I'm, I'm a bit of a slow study. Uh, so I've been working on it for five or six years. Uh, it's triangulated by probably three facts or three curiosities. Uh, one is that of ongoing economic catastrophe. Uh, one is of the social crisis, uh, which exists in part in relation to that, um, both from the sort of phenomenologically specific daily experience of, of uh, what it means to be living through such a period to various ideas around uh, m more advanced social struggles. Uh, and then uh, the third thing is the place of poetry uh, within that scenario especially given that we're at sort of the tail end or maybe the afterword of a period in which, despite its extraordinary lack of uh, popularity, uh, poetry was, was believed to have uh, <laughs> quite extraordinary political prowess. 
in part through ideas about sort of cultural revolution and, 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 and transformation through, through cultural interventions, in part through sort of theoretical ideas around the materiality of language and thus its ability to intervene in, uh, in various ways. Uh, and, and these were sort of the uh, popular and very flattering to poetry discourses that circulated in the uh, starting in the 60s and increasing through the 70s and 80s, and have sort of started to fade. And I must say, one of the, the, the notes that runs through this manuscript is trying to understand the place of poetry uh, over and over again as a way of trying to understand my own practices uh, in, in the awareness that those ambitious hopes for poetry have sort of uh, been revealed to be optimistic. The first poem is called The Transformation Problem. Can you hear okay in the back? He died unable to lift himself above the shoals of everyday life. This is the sin of despair. I speak, of course, of Mayakovsky. In the 20th century, the best you could say of a person was this. The revolution betrayed him before he betrayed the revolution. Sappho, the truth is the part. You were the last love poet for a long time. It was in this period that the idea of communism was born. I like the canto where Ezra tries to fuck a rock. Pasolini loved the party from his youth. He preferred the boys with smooth cheeks. He had to leave Friulia to become the Friulian poet. I think this is a tale of heresy. In Rome, they also had boys and the party, but with a difference. No more unoccupied afternoons and many alleys. Perverts and militants learned to keep other relations to windows. Anyway, they kicked him out. And only then did he become a true communist. You will see a theme developing. We realize ourselves and die in exile. The party got older, and it began to take odd jobs and grow a beard. The beard was Stalin. <laughs> in Rome, boys with jaws cool and mean enough to survive the years of lead to come. Stalin's beard ruined it for everyone. Ovid saw this simple fact early on. We are subject to invisible and impersonal forces that go to work on us. We flail in our chains. The work of the world transforms the body over and over. Things in nature seem more concrete than humans with their airy discourse. But when spirits hum in every rock and river, the situation is reversed. To undergo the metamorphosis into a tree among trees is to become more abstract and more free. This combination is lost to us now. Thus, the strange illumination of Ovid's words. 
the transformations continue. Long-term capital management. I just realized that Mayakovsky appears in this poem, too. I'm very fond of Mayakovsky. <laughs> the tide bot glows briefly, even the old 50 bot, with the chapel of what Benchambopit long since bumped but still legal, glows briefly. The rupiah glows in Indonesia, and we are skipping over the Malaysian ringgit, the Philippine peso, and the Singapore dollar's orchid series, its bird and its ship series. The stations and the circuits between stations lighting up in a sequence so complex it's mystical, or maybe it's like following a branching thought through the brain of it all, the system entire which has no real name. In the most tangled complexity, one finds moments of great intimacy where the sun shines on a friendly picture of Suharto with open collar and a jet rising reverse over Sukarno Hatta Airport, and so glows the Indonesian rupia. And the South Korean won 10,000 glows through the now destroyed water clock of Borogak Pavilion with moire on watermark and intaglio latent image, and then the ruble, which has been everywhere and once rubbed shoulders with Mayakovsky. The ruble glows and starts to fade at the frontiers of Asia and now a pause in the series, but comes a moment in which the effigy of the Republic and the green-winged macaw on their dusty rose perches inside the Brazilian five-real note both glow briefly, ever so briefly. And the peso convertible, the pride of Argentina, on which appears in gentle blue the disgraced historian who first translated Dante into Spanish. This too finally glows and that is said to be the end of beauty. But I say there is nothing as beautiful as the Yuan. And among all the various bills with their lotuses and their halls of the people, none compares to the humble quine note with its orchid watermark and three pools mirroring the moon at Westlake. This is my what I did on my summer vacation poem. Except it wasn't really summer vacation. Uh, it was uh, sabbatical. In 2009, I know the confusion of summer vacation for sabbatical is like one of the, the sort of virtues of, of like having your consciousness utterly destroyed by being a professor. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Fall of 2009 ended with me in jail. When I was let out of jail, I fled the country for France. <laughs> That's, that was my personal anecdote. Do you like it? Um, and this is sort of my account of uh, uh, living there in that spring and spending time with some friends who also had recently been in jail and were under a strange kind of house arrest. It has one French phrase in it, which I don't entirely understand. Of course, those are always the most interesting phrases. 
um, I was I was helping one of my friends translate a a piece, and it had this expression, uh, "casse du sucre." Pardon my accent; it's just not uh, good. Uh, "Casse du sucre sur le dos de quelqu'un," which means to to break sugar across someone's back. And I came to this phrase, and I said, "Well, what does this mean?" And he said, "It means to break sugar across someone's back." <laughs> Because, you know, people don't understand that when they themselves are, are using metaphors, you get so used to them. And I'm like, well, we don't really have that expression in English. <laughs> what does it mean? You know, he says, you know, to give someone shit. So, it appears in the poem. It's called Gilded Age. Working from a text, we can say that they are not allowed to travel Working from a text, we can say this poem may be a kind of betrayal. Working from a text, we can say that they have had their tools taken away. Working from the text, we must avoid any kind of poignancy. Working in a town where there are many car dealers and fewer charms or not working in a town because no tools. And so just having a soda agroom and reading from the library of riots, and all of this seemed to some a special effect, and to the rest of us, like life. And like life, part of it was made from texts. Against the day, Demon One, Wonder Factory, original gangster, straight out of Compton, on a generation that squandered its poets, South Asia, Je es une autre tranche de mezzanine, Nina and Alberto, total syntax, syntagma square, queer substance, stance of critique, tikkun, the call, call it thought, thought is the bride of what thinking, king of the may, maya arul pragasam, gazam kunstwork, workday, David Harvey V.O., Ose Josephine, phenomenology of spirit, written exam, Matisse, backward is system. Tim on the cover of the Chronicle, California Girls, Earl's Court, 24 City, EU, Euro, Dollar, La Rue, Rue des Pyramides, Middlesex Occupation, On the Road to Rouen, Uncertainty, NTM, M. Phil, Film Socialisme, Method, The Dollar Crisis, Isidore Ducasse, Casse du Sucre sur le Dos de Quelqu'un. A thing like a frag. A thing like a sin, a thing like a tag, a ment, a meta tag, and the fire in the bank. If an image disappeared, its place was immediately filled with a kind of neutral plastic material we knew as the social stuff. And a new image would appear elsewhere with a gentle whoosh, because the visible kept a careful equilibrium, except it wanted to expand. And sometimes when you woke in the morning, there would also be an unfamiliar image where an old image had been. And we didn't know if they were pasted one image on the other, like an old billboard, or if the new image covered over the social stuff, or maybe it was what the stuff had become. The images were beautiful and often included clouds or words. And word clouds were themselves an allegory for the social stuff. And like all allegories, it went both ways. It was getting all over us. Working from a text, I felt guilty for working. 
you walk out the door and you're just like, what's up, global underclass? We knew it was time. We knew it was time to leave. We knew it was time to leave our time. Love could not help with this. And all this talk of zones of ambience is possible because you live in a quarter that is the Jewish quarter, in a neighborhood that is the gay neighborhood, on a street that is mentioned by name in the zone just 98 years ago. It is the street with the lesbian bars, and this was the garment district at one point, 95% of the nation's clothing made here. And now it is fashionable, as life is fashionable. And at 9.30 a.m., the people who are almost beautiful enough to never work arrive for their jobs. And it is the second day of spring, measuring not by the calendar, but the pleasure index of the air. And you think this is close enough to be an image of your life, as you are almost beautiful, that is to say, not beautiful. And though you are professionally lazy, you'll never be free of the work, and no one is transformed as the world is transformed, and finally, in the afternoon, with pheromonal halos around their bodies, the neighbors race out of their apartments to bang into each other on the corner. And I want to be honest about how much I love all this. And its pleasure is my pleasure. And its wine is my wine when I can afford it. And I'm holding this in my mind as truth and measure when I say it must be annihilated. Not as text, but really now. An age which no longer loves poetry has betrayed itself. There are not two kinds of poetry. There is only one, Jacobin and unyielding. The first principles must be beyond dispute. The best poetry will have contempt for its era. So will the worst. It must be made from everything, including text. This is the minimum formula for realism. But it does not align itself with texts. It must align itself with work, meaning hatred of work. <laughs> it must desire change so much it is accused of being in love with annihilation. It must, in fact, love annihilation. The rest is sophism. Metalipsis for Wienhua. Metalipsis is, I learned this category from my friend Louis, whose dream is, because he's also had the spectacular good fortune of becoming an academic, <clears throat> uh, his dream is to give papers where you never really say anything. You know, to go to conferences and you just shuffle pieces of paper around and you sort of, all those little things you say that aren't really the paper but go around it, like, you know, like, well, I think you can see where that's going and... <laughs> I'm pretty high right now. Whatever it is, the stuff you know. <laughs> and this dream of assembling a paper entirely from, from those, those kind of utterances without any argument whatsoever, which I think is a completely legitimate both dream and representation of the truth of academia. Uh, Metalipsis for Wien Hua. As I have argued elsewhere... <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
As I've argued elsewhere, most people are Rihanna, and the rest are Donald Sutherland, or maybe Michael Caine, which everyone was an Alfie. I don't mean this typologically, like there are two kinds of people. There are two people in the world, and they share certain things, but they have never met, and we are them. All of us are them, and this is okay. In fact, I would give my left eye to be the beautiful boy who is an Alfie, but I'm not. I'm Rihanna. <laughs> this is my flag of convenience when I am walking with headphones on through the Theory District. It's called Spring Georgic. Some of you, you will, some of you will know, Georgic is a, a poem designed to instruct. The best Georgics inform you about how to keep bees, agricultural uh, procedures. So, you know, I wanted to try and make a useful poem, try and gather something from my ceaseless efforts to learn lessons from history, and from various books, which both help and hinder in this struggle. So this is Spring Georgia. I think it's the longest poem I'll read. Listen, I have something to tell you, and it's too simple to tell it simply. So 1872, Dostoevsky publishes Bessie. 1913, Constant Garnett publishes first English translation as the possessed. Thus, precisely within the brackets of the Great War and the Commune, human character changed. A library is more like a palace than it is like a bookstore. A bookstore is more like a hotel. A hotel is only something like a library, but a great deal like a department store, while the department store and the high palace are one. Around that time, we were leaving behind realism and with it the struggle over the working day. Once that catastrophe was confirmed, the fighting shifted to the front of consciousness, and then we were fully modern. In the main hall of the century, the decor was a jumble of American wazerie. I've read a lot of very thick books and have come to believe only three things. One. Do not send your army into Afghanistan. The Hindu Kush will swallow them. Two, no matter the circumstances, do not grant emergency powers to anyone. <laughs> I promise to finish, but first interlude on the romance of the lost manuscript. The Arcades Project and the theory of speculation were both left to languish in the National Library in France while everybody else was having modernism. And then recovered in the 50s, and each book invented a new capital, one for the 19th century and one for the future of finance. Oh, those banky boys swanning through the age of arbitrage like hookers through the dizzy atrium of the hotel future foretold. And in Sao Paulo, there is a department store without any doors at all. What thoughts I have of you tonight, Fred Jameson?
We make our plans among ruins of the geopolitical Baroque. At some point, we were all working downtown in bookstores. What a luxury, like Coca-Cola for breakfast. We took turns sitting on the floor behind the back counter reading new arrivals. I remember the Andy Warhol diaries. I remember lipstick traces. I remember all those black pocketbooks from semiotext. Now everyone is super flux. But like credit, we are getting ahead of ourselves. Later, it will be translated as the devils or demons. The Russian word besi actually indicating spirits which may possess a body uninvited but are not themselves possessed. It seemed like a crude mistake had been rectified. To say it is a new era is to say it has discovered a new style of time. We do not do this in language first, but in terrain we have not chosen and do not yet understand. Language meets us there and must be cajoled into open air by dangling the old forms in their rack and wreckage. This is the poetic thought. What true act would make every word in the dictionary political? Nina says, book burning. That seems right. And it may be that a people can be judged by how they answer this question. And this, too, is the poetic thought. Lotre Amant, mysterious and extreme romantic, was in 1870 already dead in a hotel a few yards from where I stayed last week. The chance of Maldoror largely unknown until it was discovered in a bookstore in 1917. Hey, Paris, you're beautiful, but you're terrible at keeping track of books. It had been filed in the mathematics section. <laughs> and finally, this too is the poetic thought. Like credit, the book is unable to be in the same time with itself. Its meanings run ahead while it lingers on a shelf, or its meanings come racing to catch up to the instant when the book is found in some poor agent's hand. And so we are always naming the wayward motion of things en route to realizing themselves, the fate, the itinerary, the defile, the fortune. But is there not a kernel of truth concealed within Garnett's error? If we speak, you and I, of the dispossessed, free and doubly free to haul their flesh to market, why would we not call those others within whom moves the spirit of money, why would we not call these the possessed? Green and gold in the springtime, in March, in April, and in May, especially in late March, seize the banks. My life in the new millennium. It was true that the more I hated people, the more I loved cats. <laughs> then people started to surprise me. Often this involved fire 
or Coca-Cola bottles with petrol, which amounts to the same thing. <laughs> Once fire is the form of the spectacle, the problem becomes how to set fire to fire. Some friends were prepared to help with this, which Michael Jackson having died and then Whitney Houston was the new pop music. Without an understanding of the world system and the underlying truth of land as the place of politics and the sea as the space of commerce, it is hard to integrate that other most important fact of our era, pirates. My friends and pirates and cats. It comes down to comrades known and elsewhere. This is the last poem I'm going to read. Um, I wanted to write a poem sort of particular to this occasion. I entirely failed to do so. I did, however, write it here. I finished it in your beautiful student union. Um, and it has the word social in it a lot. So my idea this is totally optional, is that every time I say the word social, you just, social, you just pretend I'm saying the word SoCal. <laughs> and, and it'll seem like it's you know, specific to the, the occasion. It's called Poem Ending with a Phrase from Lorene Niedeker. keep my mind under my arm where I hold my head when I walk down to market, when I walk, when I walk down to the market, the actions are social. When I walk down, walk down to the inferno, the mind is private. I had a dream. The mind is private. I had a vision. The mind is privately held under my arm. When I walk, I had a dream, had a Baudelaire, had a Rambeau. The action is social, but Apollinaire walks down to market promenades, he promenades, is in the market, walks out, walks home, walks through streets named after market towns. The names are social, but the century is private. The inferno is social, but the mind follows. The head thinks we can leave, thinks we can go down to the market and leave, just leave, thinks we can be in it, but not of it. You know all too well that the best poetry is not the least revolution. You know also that poetry is the best way available to you to affirm this truth. Now we start to see how the trap is sprung, how it was sprung and all before you were born into a book, the offhand color of the day, you found yourself mind held under your arm in the poetry market despite the spontaneous wailings of the poets who believe there must be no market because they cannot afford that for which they should not have to pay. The action is social, but the market exists as the secret police exist, but it will never send you to jail for your poems, though we all believed in private that we were worth jailing for the terrible sedition of our dithy rams. <laughs> and we deserve this honor in a 
no passeron, toto somos pussy riot sort of way, but the good reader geared for riot cometh not for us. The poem fails just when it is victorious because one cannot live the absolute of victory over the sun until one can, and we do, and many will die when this happens. Poetry will be renewed in the blood of the negative and dreadfully much else. Thank you. I always have a minute for questions. Yeah, I think so. That was the first question. <laughs> oh, I thought I got to ask the questions. Oh, yeah. yeah. Sure. <laughs> uh, Joshua also has there's books over here, so Question. Sir. Yes, sir. That last poem, who's the read letter here? Why is that title? Lorene? Uh, Lorene Niedeker's a, 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 a poet of whom I'm very fond. She lived in Wisconsin for most of her life. She's associated with the objectivist movement mid-20th mid century. Um, she had close relationships. How close is a matter of debate uh, <laughs> with uh, several of the other objectivists. Uh, she was not very well known as a poet in her lifetime. She wrote odd sort of fragments that built into long series, which is kind of common in the... In the uh, Objectivist tradition, and she has one passage in a very long poem called For Paul, a passage called, I think the passage is called In the Brief Quiet After the Bomb. Does that sound right, Sandra? Um, uh, and when she talks about working in a print shop um, and the oddity of the relationship between working in a print shop, making words, as it were, and being a poet and making words in a different way and the difference, which she admits, like she doesn't do that bullshit that poets wanted to do in the 1980s of like, you know, these words are, it's, this, is, this, this is work just like any other work and this is material labor and, you know, I leave that to the delusionists. Uh, but she was, <laughs> she was really clear uh, about the distinction and the tension between those two things and how she was trapped in that and discomfortable with that. And I think you can see how my own interests line up with that in, in certain ways. And so that line and dreadfully much else is from a different context, but I borrowed it to end that poem with. Thank you for asking. That's a useful question. Hi. It's in the poem. I just didn't throw up the gang sign for it. <laughs> Ray says it. Seize the banks. That's the third thing. Hi. You said you wrote the last poem today. I started it a couple of days ago and I've been tinkering, well, maybe a week ago, but I've been tinkering with it and, and, and finished it today, although I'm sure I'll refinish it again. This will be the only time that it appears in that, that form. There's still, I can see there's two places where it's completely fucked, but I tried not to start crying while I was reading it. And uh, um, So it'll keep the same lineaments, but it'll be different. I, I noticed, at least in the way you read it, it seemed more... Conversational and smooth as you did with your other poems. Do you find that as you work on a poem more, it becomes more prosy? 
Well, it becomes, I don't know about more prosy, but it certainly has a tendency to become smoother. Um, and, and that sometimes can be good because you've got kinks in it that you need to work out, but sometimes that can be a real problem and you soften your, um, your blows. I'm not very interested in sort of uh, jagged syntax and disjunction for its own sake that was a, a very, and remains in some ways a very um, significant and, 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 and well-loved formal, formal device. But in that poem I wanted, um, it's more like, it's not jagged, but like stuttery. Like, like uh, stuttery. I could, I can't, I mean, the, the real source of it is, uh, it, of, of the rhythmic device is a 60s garage rock song that has when I walk, when I walk, that pretty good, that's it, like just that little chunk. Um, and I'm sure it involves walking with my baby or something appropriately, you know, 60s garage rock. Uh, but I wanted that thing. <laughs> and it's a good, like, I mean, I, I thank you for reminding me because the risk in revision is always that, like, those things get smoothed out as you start hearing the meter more. And um, there was a period when the poem was called a period. By, by period, I mean, like, Tuesday afternoon. Uh, <laughs> when the poem was called... Um, poem ending with a line of iambic pentameter, and it ended, we're going to have to kill a lot of cops. Um, <laughs> we'll see if that line survives or not. I don't know. <laughs> well, Niedeker and pentameter is a nice off rhyme, right? That's, I mean, there's something there. What do you mean? How might what relate to place? The last you mean how might it relate to being written here or the part of it being written here? Well, I mean, I think that I drank so much coffee in the student union um, <laughs> that uh, there's just a really nice person in the Espresso Roma who understood that I had pretty profound pr problems and needs and gave me a lot of coffee for free. Um, <laughs> um, and, uh, um, and all that coffee helped me keep with that, with that stuttering rhythm. I'm not, I mean, I'm not sure how it relates specifically to um, this place. It wasn't started here, um, but it's hard to finish a poem, and so I enjoyed having a chance to quasi-finish it this morning, and I think probably being a little bit absent from my usual places of writing helped, and of course all the coffee you gave me before I went to Espresso Roma helped too. Um, but I'm, you know, I, don't, I wouldn't make any claims for it being so Cal specific. Surely we can move on to other non-poetic topics. <laughs> well, he's universally known as the bunny, but, <laughs> but his real name is Niccolo. He was named after Machiavelli, which turned out to be a bit of an overreach because as adorable as he is, he's not a particularly clever cat. Um, uh, but he's adorable. Thank you for asking. <laughs> Adam? Um, uh, maybe in light of like, your music writing, uh, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on, on Gangnam Style. <laughs> That's weird. It's like it's, it's a month we had to talk about that. Um, I don't really. I mean, I have a good friend named Oki who's from Gangnam, and she has a lot of interesting things to say about it, and I wouldn't want to just recite them and, claim, you know, sort of take credit for them. She, I mean, I, I, the song is obviously a real 
appears to us as a novelty hit and, um, I, and, and is a novelty hit. And I don't like, want to make great claims for its social relevance, but apparently the drama of what it means to be from Gangnam, if you're from Seoul, is, is, a, is a real social question, and I don't want to be an asshole and talk about it because I, really, I don't really know. The dance is, you know, good. <laughs> and you know, do you see the live version on American Music Awards? Maybe anyone? American Music Awards? Is that right? With 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 Hammer, right? He just came out and and that's good, right? That was good. Yeah, that was pretty satisfying. I, I saw it. So what? Really? Tell us about it. Is it all like that song? No, sorry. <laughs> But that's interesting. So you're from Gangnam, but even so, you're like, uh, yeah, fuck Gangnam. Right. I mean, and, and one can see, like, you know, one imagines a conversation that happens in you know, uh, I, I don't know, uh, uh, Fiji, right, where they have some song about Hollywood, as if, like, Hollywood was this unified space with a sort of a monoculture that you could make fun of. And in some ways it is, right? We know Hollywood signifies the, the movie industry, and certain, but I mean, if you spent any time in Hollywood and West Hollywood, you know, there's actually quite variegated culture there, and it would be crazy to say. So, so, I mean, that's why it's really useful to remember that pop songs are great because they... Um, abstract, but if you treat them as non-abstract, as concrete assessments of situations, you've really, uh, <laughs> you've really sort of maybe gone in the wrong direction from what it is that makes them great, which is this sort of abstracting into this faux universalist language of pleasure. You know? Which time? <laughs> Am I going back? I don't think we're going to do time for the current thing. I had a great deposition with a lawyer the other day at seven hours. They get seven hours. It's like really fixed, right? So it's interesting to go into stalling techniques because, you know, so, so obviously my job doesn't pay a wage. So like that thing you do in jobs where you sort of like try strategies to make time pass without really doing anything unpleasant, you don't have to do very much if you're a teacher. You either do stuff or you don't, right? Uh, but, but so I'm almost never on the clock in that sense. But the seven-hour deposition was totally like on the clock. So it was like, how could you make the seven hours pass without having various... And I had these great conversations. The, the, uh, the opposing counsel, this is about an uh, entirely different case involving the 2009 arrest um, in which the, you know, the, the, people who, the people who got arrested are suing for false arrest, and I'm part of that group. So, I, I, and so the, the opposing counsel wanted all my uh, records relating to that for evidence, and I didn't have very much because my computer got stolen, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so he keeps, he keeps on pressing me and saying, like... Uh, and I didn't like him. <laughs> if that's not clear. I didn't care for him. And uh, he, he kept on pressing me about, like, like, have you written anything since then that relates to that? And I said, well, I've written a couple of things about uh, university struggles since 2009. And they've mentioned that event, but they haven't described what happened or any, you know, what actually happened inside the building or who did what. So I don't think they're relevant. And, they didn't, and he said, well, so have you written anything else that was related to it? 
my, my attorney who's sitting next to me said, objection, asked and answered, but in a deposition, you just put that for the record and then I still have to answer. So I said, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure what you mean. Just are the best way to make time pass, right, is to make the lawyer say their question over there. And, <laughs> and so he said, since that time, have you written any documents that are related to what happened uh, in, from you know, December 7th to 11th, 2009? And I said, because you pause. I said, yes. <laughs> and he said, what? And I said, because I am a poet and an asshole, I said, everything I've written since then is related to that. <laughs> and, <we're, laughs> and I wanted him to say, like, yeah, could you, you know, <laughs> you're going to have to produce all of that as a discovery. But no, he, like, asked me what I meant, and I explained to him how I understood related to work, and, you know, I was like... <laughs> He was angry. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> yeah. Are you not Rihanna? <laughs> are you not Rihanna? <laughs> yeah, I really don't. I just felt like that one day, like there were kind of two, they're kind of just, these were the two sort of, for me, pure figures in the world, and we should understand that we're just sort of subcategories of that. And, and moreover, that we shouldn't feel bad about that. It's, it's great. Of course, I wrote that poem way back when uh, Rihanna wasn't the clear winner. But, uh, <laughs> you know, so I felt a little bad in the poem that I was not Michael Caine, but I feel better about it now. Um, can I ask you a question of, about poetry? <laughs> <laughs> um, what have we been talking about? Yeah, always, but um, I, I, I uh, read all your books of poems, both books of poems closely, uh, and your first book was very much sort of a, a uh, pyrotechnic kind of uh, formal form was all over, all over. And I'm interested in this sort of relationship of this kind of anxiety that these poems are coming out of. And if that anxiety, uh, I feel formal over these poems, but in a, in a more discursive way or something. Uh, um, you just talk about maybe your relationship with Wow. <laughs> <laughs> All right, the warm-up's over. <laughs> um, that, that, or your last That's a very serious and, frankly, personal question. <laughs> um, but, I mean, personal, it's, it's serious because it's personal, which is to say, yeah, the, the first book was, was highly formal in ways that most people, I think, didn't necessarily register as much as as much as you did, most of the poems are, in fact, in, in that book are written in, uh, you know, decasyllabics and um, um, off, often with sort of very elaborate rhyme schemes where the rhymes are so far apart that 
most people don't, don't register that uh, 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 very, very much. Um, and I thought I was getting a bunch of things from that. Like one of the, the main thing, like, like there's, there's, there's two manifest approaches to form in poetry. One is form that's entirely visible to the reader and it, it, um, they can see that it's happening and it helps them uh, locate themselves in relation to it and have experiences of genre and, and, um, and know when to expect the rhyme sound to come along and what, you know, whatever. Um, I'm very fond of that kind of poetry. I do not gainsay it at all. Um, the other is form that is not necessarily visible to the reader, but is, uh, becomes a sort of outboard superego for the writer, right? So if you say only decasyllabics, every line's got to end after 10 syllables, and I'm not going to use hyphens, um, then you're forced to make some decisions. You come up with a really line you really like, and it's got 11 syllables in it, and the last word is a three-syllable word, and you've got to figure, like, you know, the problem is all poets love the smell of their own shit, and it's really hard to sometimes make those difficult formal choices. And you set up a, a protocol like that, and it makes you make the formal choices. And I found that super useful. Like, that got me through that book, um, and making myself make hard choices. Now we get, like, so something weird happens then, which is that the book um, uh, gets published and wins a prize, with which Ben is also familiar. Um, and gets taken up and suddenly people want to publish your poems, not because they like the poems, but because you have a slightly recognizable name um, and a kind of brand. Uh, it got to the point where I won't <clears throat> name names, but a certain publishing house came to me and said, we'd really like to publish your next book uh, because we're trying to expand our palette a little bit. We're looking for a poet with, uh, who's like somewhat experimental, but still with a recognizable eye I'm like, well, that's weird, because my dream was my publisher would want to publish the book because they liked it. Um, <laughs> and, um, uh, and so there's definitely, for me, a backtracking away from uh, um, brand, that brand, right, or something, or something like that, including those kinds of formal performances. I don't know if they're pyrotechnic, but, but technical, at least. Um, and wanting to back away from that and figure out other things to do. So that's like the personal side of the story. Um, but I think that relates to the sort of the conceptual side that you're maybe asking about more, uh, which is um, I feel like very much betwixt and between. On the one hand, I don't want to imagine that poetry is more um, I don't. Uh, I don't quite know how to how to how to resolve this this uh, puzzle. I guess I think that um, poetry has to admit to its own poetryness, and I don't care for poetry that doesn't. Uh, at the same time, poetry can't be in love with its own poetryness so much that it becomes uh, proud of its own crafty achievements. And trying to split that difference, where you admit that you're a poet, right? That you don't you don't imagine you're gonna you're gonna escape the limits of poetry somehow in your poetry, uh, but at the same time you don't accept the limits of poetry as a set of technical measures which you can succeed and achieve. So that's the that's the middle space, right? It's a middle space and it has no clear solution. And any serious poet, and I include a lot of people in this room, I mean, I really think about the three of you's work, among, you know, just among others, live in that space and like suffer in that space and try and resolve that problem. And you don't really resolve the problem. But like the trying to resolve it in that space is the work of not being a fucking asshole, you know? And 
Um, and you do that, and then eventually you die. <laughs> Is that a kind of answer? <laughs> Thank you all very much.